You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome. So I have been uh, sick with just a standard head cold uh, for several days and intermittently haven't had a voice, which strangely enough has made it just a wee bit challenging to record a podcast. Go figure. Uh, Anywho, this episode is going to be a continuation of the previous episode episode 14 on trauma anniversaries. I highly, highly, highly recommend you listen to that one first. For those who have listened to it and are ready for part two, it is time for a recap. Previously on Let's Therapize That Shit. West Wing references aside, uh, last episode, I talked about my trauma anniversaries, a significant portion of which occur in the second half of January. It's a rough month for me. 100% of the Januaries that I've had since my PTSD symptoms started, I've either had a self-harm relapse or gotten very sick, which makes my current cold make a bit more sense, actually. Huh. All things considered, it's not pneumonia or pleurisy like it was in 2015 when I cracked a couple ribs. It's also not the 14 days of pelvic floor spasm that I had in 2020. So, silver lining? Anyway, in the last episode, I talked about some of the beliefs that I have around my trauma, including what my different states of mind have to say about it. I've talked in the past about the different states of mind, emotion mind, thinking mind, and wise mind. That's from the DBT manual, Mindfulness Handout 3, if you want to go look it up. So my different states of mind have different beliefs around these trauma anniversaries. My thinking mind says, it's over, we're done, move on, we're fine. We really don't have to keep acknowledging these fucking anniversaries, get over it. My emotion mind says, fuck you, of course we have to acknowledge these anniversaries, and the only way to do that is to self-harm. How else will we know that we're in pain? And my wise mind says, clearly it's important to acknowledge these anniversaries, and there's a way to do that that isn't self-harm. So in the last episode, I talked about using the Copahead skill. I didn't just talk about it. I used the Copahead skill. I talked about reading a poem that I'd written about the trauma and about my self-harm to honor what that experience was like. 
And I also mentioned that one of the assignments my therapist gave me was to go back over the mountains that I've summited in therapy to acknowledge all the work that I've done. Which brings us to this current episode. I am recording this part on February 12th, and the recording you are about to hear, I recorded on January 4th, 2020. And that recording that you're about to hear is literally a continuation of the recording that made up the bulk of episode 14. I'm just chopping it up into pieces because that one big recording was like three hours long. So I've cut it up and I'm making a few episodes out of it. So in this episode, you'll hear me reference things I said, quote, earlier, and you might go, but wait, you didn't say that earlier in this episode. You're exactly right. I said it earlier in the part of the recording that was in episode 14. So I really do recommend you listen to that one first. In the recording you're about to hear, I start off right away talking about what I got out of doing exposure therapy, like how it benefited me. A quick refresher on what exposure therapy is. The type that I did was DBT-PE, which stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy Prolonged Exposure. In the last episode, I talked about how PTSD persists because of harmful beliefs and avoidance. So exposure therapy is a highly controlled, very useful way to test these harmful beliefs by actually doing the things I'm avoiding. Again, in a highly controlled, very intentional way. I'm going to explain a lot more about exposure therapy in future episodes because I am going to be doing it again starting in a week and a half. Oh joy, oh rapture. Uh, I liken it to kind of removing a massive and very deep splinter. The process of removing the splinter really, really sucks. And removing it is way better than living with a splinter, just stuck in there, wherever there happens to be. I'm also going to post or repost a video that I think is a delightful depiction of what exposure therapy feels like. There's a kid hanging onto a rope in water, screaming, scared out of his mind about being in water. And his mom comes over and pushes his legs down, and it turns out that the water is like a foot deep. <laughs> and it's captioned with, this is what overthinking looks like. It's also what avoidance looks like, as it turns out. So after doing six months of exposure back in 2017, my then therapist and I put together a relapse prevention plan to help me manage my PTSD symptoms if they came back they increased. And that is where we pick up today's episode. Quick note here, in about a minute, you're going to hear me say the phrase, I'm not feeling into a new way of acting. I'm acting into a new way of feeling. I don't know why I use the word acting. I think behaving is much clearer. So what I would have preferred to say is I am not feeling into a new way of behaving. I'm behaving into a new way of feeling. Uh, it bothered me when I listened back to it, so I figured I'd clarify. Also, all the trigger warnings. I talk a lot about self-harm and rape and PTSD in this episode, so please be mindful and listen to your gut. 
And if this is the first time you joined us for some shit therapizing, uh, allow me to orient you to a couple things. First of all, most of the skills I reference are from the DBT manual. Again, DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is my therapy type of choice. Uh, The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy online. And whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, I turn on a bit of reverb. So I sound like I'm in the Louvre or a high school bathroom. It's actually way more like a high school bathroom. Anywho, in the words of Michael Scott, let's all laugh together and listen to Past Joy. So maybe now is the time to read from my relapse prevention worksheet. This is a worksheet that I filled out when I was finishing up my exposure therapy. Step one, remind yourself of what you have learned. PTSD is maintained by problematic beliefs that typically fall into three general categories. One, the world is extremely dangerous. Yeah. Two, it is my fault that the trauma occurred. Three, I am incompetent and unable to handle difficult situations. Exposure therapy is designed to allow you to test the accuracy of these types of beliefs and to learn that they are not correct. What new beliefs have you developed as a result of completing exposure? Use this information to check the facts if old beliefs have started to return. So this is a worksheet written by Melanie Harned, H-A-R-N-E-D, PhD. So here are my top five new beliefs that I got out of doing exposure therapy. And on a scale of one to 10, how much I believe them. One, my feelings and emotions are valid in trying to tell me something. And I believe that about an eight out of 10. Number two, all behavior is caused and makes sense. Initially, I wrote down that this is a 10 out of 10. I'm struggling with this right now. So I would say probably an eight or a seven out of 10. Number three, I am not feeling into a new way of acting. I'm acting into a new way of feeling. Initially, I put down a 9 out of 10 for how much I believe that one, and I'm also struggling with that one right now. So let's say a 6, because I don't feel like I'm acting into a new way of feeling at all. I don't feel like I'm acting, and I also don't feel like I am finding a new way of feeling. Number four, I have access to new behaviors that can change the outcome in the future. At the time, I said 10 out of 10. And at the time being, like, I think this was November of 2017. I have access to new behavior that can change the outcome in the future. I don't know. I honestly don't know about that one. I'm going to say I'm at a four out of 10 as far as how much I believe that now. And then... The last one is what happened to me makes sense. And back in 2017, I said, I believe this a 10 out of 10. Today, today I put that at, I don't know, a 7 out of 10, I guess. Clearly, I am struggling right now. I've been having a lot of self-harm ideation. And maybe this would be a good thing to do, actually. Please hold... I'm going to call this distress. Even though I'm not like screaming or crying or anything else, I am feeling really, really strong urges. 
to self-harm specifically. And so I'm going to take a look at the pros and cons sheet. Pros and cons is a crisis survival skill. And when to use crisis survival skills? You're in a crisis when the situation is highly stressful, short term, that is, it won't last a long time, and creates intense pressure to resolve the crisis now. This is distress tolerance handout three, by the way. (sighs) So this is short term, even if it doesn't feel like short term right this second, that this discomfort that I'm feeling will last through about the first week of February. So a month. And I do have intense pressure to resolve the crisis now. I really, 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 really want to (laughs) self-harm. Like a lot. And so that's highly stressful. So clearly I'm in crisis. I use crisis survival skills when, one, you have intense pain that cannot be helped quickly. Two, you want to act on your emotions, but it will only make things worse. Three, emotion mind threatens to overwhelm you and you need to stay skillful. Four, you were overwhelmed, yet demands must be met. Five, arousal is extreme, but problems can't be solved immediately. So I'm definitely in experiencing intense pain that can't be helped quickly. It's not really pain. It's hyperarousal. It's agitation. I'm angry and also feeling hopeless. And I do want to act on my emotions and it will only make things worse because I know that we haven't had an episode about self-harm. I've been working on trying to put one together and it's, it's a sensitive topic that requires a real intention. So I want to be really careful about what I say and how I say it. So that's why I haven't put one together yet. So there's not a lot of context. I used to self-harm a lot. I started self-harming back in... 2014, about six months after, no, four or five months after my PTSD symptoms started. I had delayed onset PTSD that happened. The symptoms started two and a half years after the rape. So a few months after that is when I started self-harming. And it does something for me. It's like a pressure release valve. It does something in the short term. It did have a lot of long-term consequences. It caused a huge amount of distress with my former partner. And while I was with him, I self-harmed twice. But it was really distressing for him. And it is a giant neon sign that has people come up to me at the gym and ask me about my body, which is not fun. And I've had conversations with pretty much every sexual partner I've had since I started self-harming about what it is and why. I have a lot, I did have a lot of shame about it. I don't have a lot of shame about it anymore, possibly because I'm not actively self-harming anymore. But while I was, I'm not going to lie, it did feel really good. Like it actually did do something for me and I didn't want to stop. I had to stop in order to do prolonged exposure DBT, DBTPE. I had to not be self-harming. And I'll, I'll go into this whole thing in another episode But it was really, really, really hard to stop. Like, really hard to stop. It still occurs to me almost every time I'm having extreme emotion. Like, that's one of the first places my mind goes. Like, go self-harm. And I don't like to say that I've stopped self-harming. I I (laughs) like to say I'm a recovering self-harmer. Because 
I was addicted to it. And I would still say I, I, I still am addicted to it and have to purposefully abstain from it. And it's been five years, over five years now, uh, since I was doing it regularly. And it's still hard. <laughs> I don't know if it's ever going to be easy. I don't know if it's ever going to get to a point where I no longer have to manage those urges. So, yeah. And the final thing about when to use crisis survival skills, it says, don't use crisis survival skills for everyday problems, for solving all your life problems, or for trying to make your life worth living. And the reason for that is kind of similar to, let's imagine a scenario where you keep setting your kitchen on fire and have to call the fire department. Like, Calling the fire department is a crisis survival skill. Like you do it in a crisis, right? And every time you cook food, if you're setting your kitchen on fire, I mean, it's good that you call your, the fire department because it's good to not burn down your home. And for like long-term effectiveness, probably the more effective thing is to learn how not to set your kitchen on fire. <laughs> also, if you do set your kitchen on fire, it'd be good to learn how to like have a fire extinguisher ready or how to put a fire out. <sighs> yeah, crisis survival skills are really good at bringing distress down so that you can then manage the emotions at a more manageable level. So distress is typically something that's higher than 70 out of 100. Like if 100 is the most distressed you've ever been in your life, 70 and above is when you use distress tolerance. If you're below 70, you can use emotion regulation. And the reason for that is above 70, the thinking part of our brains, the prefrontal cortex that I mentioned when I was talking about wise mind and thinking mind versus emotion mind, above 70, our prefrontal cortex is no longer online. <laughs> it is on vacation. It is off somewhere else. So when I am severely distressed... I cannot problem solve. Like I don't have access to that part of my brain. I am so strongly in emotion mind. Emotion mind has basically usurped thinking mind. Thinking mind has gone on vacation. Emotion mind is like, I'm driving the ship, steering the boat, mixing all the metaphors. And so emotion regulation, a lot of those things are more problem solving and kind of using more thoughtfulness, I guess, mindfulness around addressing emotion in distress, you don't have access to that part of your brain. Really, the only thing that I can do that is effective when I'm in extreme distress is to do distress tolerance skills. So the one I want to use right now is the pros and cons for distress tolerance. This is distress tolerance handout five. Use pros and cons anytime you have to decide between two courses of action. It's good to do this before an overwhelming crisis urge hits, like to actually write this out. The act of writing this out does require your thinking brain. And so I will write this out when I'm not in extreme crisis so that when I am in extreme crisis, I can actually grab the sheet. It's already filled out and I can review it. It's like you buy a fire extinguisher before your house burns down, before your kitchen catches fire so that it is available to you when your kitchen does catch fire. <sighs> okay, so I'm going to be reading from this just to give you some context here. 
An urge is a crisis when the urge is very strong and when acting on the urge will make things worse in the long term. And this is an important thing to note because oftentimes acting on the urge makes things better in the short term. I have, there is such a flood of, I think it's endorphins into my system after I self-harm that it actually, self-harming does make things better in the short term. Like I feel better. It's such a relief. The closest thing I have access to to explain it is if you've ever been severely, severely constipated and finally (laughs) taken a massive shit, like it's kind of like that. It can also be like if you've ever been super, super drunk and finally thrown up and your stomach suddenly calms down. It's like, oh, like this huge amount of distress goes to this huge amount of relief. And that swing is really intense and it feels really nice in the moment. So that's why an urge is a crisis when it's very strong and when acting on the urge will make things worse in the long term. And I know that self-harming makes things worse in the long term for me, even if in the short term, it feels better. Make a list of the pros and cons of acting on your crisis urge. These might be to engage in dangerous, addictive, or harmful behaviors, or they might be to give in, give up, or avoid doing what is necessary to build a life you want to live. So this is a pros and cons list of acting on the crisis urge. There are pros to acting on the crisis urge. There are pros to me, self-harming. And then what are the cons of acting on the crisis urge? What are the drawbacks? What are the problems long-term, et cetera? Make another list of the pros and cons of resisting the crisis urge. So a pros and cons list of tolerating the distress and not giving in to the urge. There are pros to resisting crisis urges. There are pros to not self-harming. Like it doesn't freak out my former partner. It doesn't create more scars that I have to talk to people about, blah, blah, blah. And then what are the cons of resisting the crisis urge? What are the drawbacks of not acting on it? This is really important, guys. This is actually a huge deal. Most pros and cons lists typically are just the one side, like the pros and cons of moving to a city, the pros and cons of breaking up with somebody. Like those are, that's kind of how we write out pros and cons lists. The reason it's so important to write out pros and cons for acting on the urge and a pros and cons for not acting on the urge is that I'll put, a, I'll put a diagram of this up on the website and a link in the description and post it on social media. Acknowledging the pros of acting on the urge. So in my case, acknowledging the pros of self-harming and acknowledging the cons of not self-harming. So acknowledging the cons of resisting that urge. That's where validation lives. That's where I go, there's a reason I self-harm. It's doing something for me. There's a reason I don't like resisting it because resisting it is painful. It acknowledges why I do the thing, why I act on the urge, and it acknowledges why it's painful to resist the urge. And those two things are really super important in terms of self-validating because a lot of these urges, somebody on the outside will be looking at me and judging and being like, why the fuck are you doing that? I think it's actually really, really important to acknowledge, like nobody self-harms just for grins and giggles. We do it because it's, it's meeting a need and it's important to understand what need it's meeting. 
Like for me, it releases tension. It releases stress, uh, hyper arousal. But the big one for me is that it functions as a way of communicating to myself that what I'm going through is real and is actually painful. And if I understand what my self-harm is doing for me, that it is validating my pain, like, okay, great. So I'm doing it to validate my pain. Can I validate my pain in a different way? It allows me to get creative. And by identifying what need that urge is meeting, I can meet that need differently. I do think the pros of acting on the urge and the cons of resisting the urge are really important to understand and acknowledge. And the flip side, the cons of acting on the urge and the pros of resisting the urge. So in my case, the cons of self-harming and the pros of resisting self-harm Those are the things that I whip out in the middle of distress and read over and go, okay, remember this, remember this, remember that resisting this will benefit us. Remember that acting on it is going to harm us. And again, I'm not coming up with this pros and cons list in the middle of distress. I'm doing it before the distress hits so that I can reference it while I'm in distress. The pros of acting on it and the cons of resisting it are the validation. And it's also what helps me get creative. The cons of acting on it and the pros of resisting it are the the encouragement, kind of the more cheerleading, I guess, of like, hey, if you don't do this thing, if you don't self-harm, this is what you'll gain. This is how you'll grow. This is how you'll benefit. And initially, I actually really hated the pros and cons list as a tool because it felt really, I think how I related to it was like, what's the pro of self-harming? What's the con of self-harming? And it felt very theoretical, cerebral even. And it's like, I didn't logic my way into self-harming. I'm not going to logic my way out of it, right? And that's where the distinction of like, hey, it's a grid. It's a two by two grid. Two of those squares are validation. And those are really important. And those two squares are actually what had me really like the pros and cons worksheet and find that it was really super useful. So I'm gonna go through the pros and cons list right now with you. So for me, the urge that I'm talking about is self-harming. The pros of acting on self-harm. This is the pros of acting on an impulse urge, giving in, giving up, or avoiding what needs to be done. And in my case, this is the pros of self-harming. Oh, it's relieving. It's hugely relieving. It's like unblocking a drain. It feels good, that relief. It just floods my system. And self-harming, like I'll ruminate on it. It'll be kind of always in the back of my head. Like the annoying toddler, like pulling on my shirt and being like, hey, 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 do that thing, do that thing, do that thing over and over again. And so doing it quiets that voice. So my brain gets really quiet I do have those endorphins. I do have that just huge sense of relief. And going from incredible stress to relief is such, it's such a relief. It also communicates to me that my pain is real. My experience is real, that it is painful, that it was impactful, that my PTSD is real, that I'm not making it up because I 
have those thoughts a lot. It is also kind of the path of least resistance. So like the difference between walking downhill and skiing downhill or taking a zip line downhill. It's just it's so much easier to do it than to try not to. It's so much easier to self-harm than to use skills. And so when I'm exhausted and don't have any emotional bandwidth, it feels easy and accessible. And I know it works in the short term. So yes, those would be my pros. And then the pros that I wrote back in 2016, actually before I even stopped self-harming, I had to stop November 6th, 2016. It was two days before the election. I had to stop then in order to start exposure therapy. So this is what I wrote back then. Feeling relief, strong pressure released, and I like the scars. Okay, so let's do the cons of acting on the crisis urge. The cons of acting on impulse urges, giving in, giving up, or avoiding what needs to be done. So the cons of acting on the impulse urge, or the cons of giving in, the con of giving up, the con of avoiding what needs to be done. So the cons of acting on the impulse urge. I have a lot of self-judgment about it. Like I have the skills to not do it. So I judge myself as being lazy. I have a lot of shame, certainly now with a podcast where I talk about using therapy skills. It's not going to feel good to utterly fail at using a therapy skill. or any therapy skill, and to self-harm instead. Because I want to be honest on this podcast, and I'm not going to lie. If I have a relapse, I'm going to talk about it. And that's not going to feel great to acknowledge that I really, like, I didn't use the skill. I know it impacts my family. It impacted my former partner, but we don't interact anymore, so that's less of a concern. But it does impact my family, and I know it impacts my friends. Because we talk about it, like I acknowledge that it that it's happened when I do it, and they feel sad, and they feel anxiety for me. Additionally, um, one of the agreements that I have with my DBT therapist is that if I self harm, I cannot contact them for twenty four hours because if I'm having a crisis and I self harm, my self harm is how I manage the crisis, and they're like, you don't need skills from me if that is how you've chosen to manage the crisis. They are very available to me if I'm in crisis and choosing not to self-harm. And they're like, great, we're going to get you everything you need so that you don't self-harm. And if I do self-harm, they're like, okay, great, you don't need me right now. This is an oversimplification. There's a much better explanation than what I'm able to regurgitate right here. But yeah, like part of how I view this podcast is it does incentivize me very strongly to actually be skillful Kind of like, you know, if you're futzing around in your bedroom, like playing the guitar and you're like, it's okay, I'm going to totally be off key and I'm not going to bother tuning my instrument and I don't really care about reading the notes versus how you might perform if you're on stage or like recording an album. And it's it kind of feels like that, like I want to demonstrate my skills and not be unskillful. Like that's part of the point of this podcast is to demonstrate therapy skills. So that would be a con to acting on the crisis urge, the con of self-harming. Another one is that there's something very different about saying, yeah, I used to self-harm versus, yeah, I self-harm. 
like if I'm actively self-harming, it's ongoing. It, it means that I haven't managed it yet. And it means that there's something I need to manage. And it's kind of hard to, to recommend myself to like a future partner. <laughs> if I'm like, hey, I have this mental illness and I am not managing my crisis urges. Be in a relationship with me. Woohoo! It doesn't feel like a great selling feature. Like I want to be a good partner. I want to be an effective partner. I want to be somebody who can regulate my emotions and do self-care and like be responsible for myself and not be dysregulated in distress all the time. Like I would want that of any partner I would have. I would want a partner to be responsible for their own emotions and to to take ownership of like addressing their weaknesses or addressing their lack of skill and you know kind of resource themselves up so that we are like in a relationship together and two functioning human beings as opposed to two basket cases so yeah that's another con of acting on the the urge to self harm so now let's talk about the pros and cons of resisting the crisis urge. The pros of resisting impulse urges, the pros of doing what needs to be done, and the pros of not giving up. The benefits of that, of resisting self-harm, is that here is why I became addicted to self-harm. Because every time I did it, when I was in distress, what I was telling my body was, hey, you cannot tolerate this distress. You can't feel it. You have to avoid it. It's intolerable. And I taught myself that there were emotions that I couldn't face and that I needed to escape by self-harming. And that was a really challenging pattern of behavior to unlearn. It took a lot to learn that, oh, I can feel that feeling. I can feel this distress. I can tolerate this distress. I can use skills to move myself through this. Yeah, so resisting self-harming and using skills instead trains my my mind to go, hey, this distress you're feeling, you've got this. You know what to do in this situation. It really is training. Like you hear stories, interviews of like Olympic gymnasts who talk about making adjustments in the middle of the air. Like they're vaulting or they're doing a floor routine and realize they're slightly off while they're flying through the air and upside down. And they're able to make adjustments because they've practiced what to do when they're off and they learn how to make adjustments so that they can land correctly and not hurt themselves. And that's very distinct from somebody who's not skilled as a gymnast who gets off in the middle of the air and then like lands wrong um, and hurts themselves or falls, you know, however, however it goes. And so learning how to make adjustments is really important. And learning how to tolerate distress is really important. And self-harm is a shortcut that basically short circuits the distress tolerance. It's like, I don't have to use distress tolerance skills if I'm self-harming. Self-harming is my coping mechanism to tolerate distress. And it's not skillful in the long term because speaking from experience, I needed more and more of it like I became immune to the lower levels and I had to keep escalating. And I never got to the point where I was like endangering my own life, but I was 
starting to toe that line. And it was really easy to see how if I kept going at the rate that I was going, that I would be taking a header over that line. <laughs> Just like pitch forward, dive in on the other side. And I didn't want to die <laughs> accidentally because that wasn't the point of my self-harm. It wasn't a suicide attempt. So yeah, the, the pros of resisting self-harm urges is that it trains my my body and my brain that I can resist them. I don't have to give in. I'm not at the mercy of the urges. I can feel them. I can acknowledge them. And I can use skills to get me through the distress that I'm feeling without self-harming. Another uh, pro of resisting the crisis urge is that I become more skillful and am able to support other people more effectively. Like, there's a reason that if you go to AA, they have sponsors, people who have experienced those extreme, you know, addictions to alcohol or drugs or what have you, who have ridden out those urges and know what it feels like and are able to support other people in riding out those urges. Otherwise, it's just like, you know, the blind leading the blind, right? So if I'm going to have a podcast where I talk about, managing urges. Hell, if, if even I'm going to be a, a good and effective friend to other people who experience these urges too, I, I would like to be able to know how to manage the urges effectively. Because I don't want my, my friends self-harming. Like I know what a slippery slope that is. I know where it leads to. I don't want to lose my friends. So me becoming more skillful by resisting the urges it helps other people too. It helps the people that I care about. It makes me more effective at being able to help the people that I care about. And then the last quadrant in our little uh, two by two square here, what are the cons of resisting the crisis urge? So this is another one of those validation squares. What are the cons of resisting the impulsive urge, the cons of doing what needs to be done? What are the cons of not giving up? It's hard. <laughs> like just pure and simple. It's hard. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes intention. And when I'm in distress, I'm already exhausted. Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to put in the work. I want to rest. I want to take the path of least resistance. So resisting literally the path of least resistance of crisis urges. So a downside of resisting the urge to self-harm is it takes energy. And it is hard. And well, and fuck, now I have to go find a skill. And not just a skill that I'm like, fine, I'll try this skill and hope that it works, but actually find a skill that actually does work and do it all the way, which takes effort. And I also have the thought that it's invalidating. I'm like, I'm in pain. I want to be able to like demonstrate that I'm in pain. And I have the belief, I have the thought that self-harm is the quote unquote only way to do that. And so resisting my self-harm urges, I have the thought that that's invalidating. This is like, because I have the thought that it's communicating to myself, you can't show other people how much pain you're in. I mean, there's some, there is some truth in that, that there are some people who the only way they understood how much pain I was in was the self-harm. Like they saw that and went, oh shit, this is serious. Because me saying, 
I feel bad. (laughs) I feel angry. I feel anxious. Like that didn't get through to them. So a con of resisting the self-harm urges is that there are some people who won't understand how I'm feeling and the amount of pain I'm experiencing. And that sucks. It just sucks that there's some people who just won't understand it. And I historically have had a lot of suffering around that because I haven't been accepting that pain. I mean, like, yeah, it does suck. It sucks a lot. Of course it sucks. These people that you care about, that you love, and who love you, you want them to understand you. You want them to understand your experience. You want them to validate you because invalidation hurts. So, of course, I would want to find a way of communication that would communicate effectively, that would communicate adequately the amount of pain that I'm in. And uh, it's kind of like saying, hey, your parents speak Russian, but we're not going to teach you Russian and they're not going to learn English. And I'm like, okay, well, then there's certain conversations I can't have with my parents because we don't speak the same language. And that is what's so. And it sucks. So here's another place I can put in a skill and do some radical acceptance around that, that my folks have not in the past and do not currently understand my experience of PTSD, my symptoms, the pain that I'm experiencing. They understand other things. Like my mom was really, really affected actually when I told her that I had been raped. Like that really, I think it took her like a year to process that. So she understands some of it, just not all of it. And I think another con of resisting the urge to self-harm is that it looks invisible. When I'm being skillful, nobody knows how hard I'm working, you know, because I'm not a squeaky wheel. So I have the thought that resisting the urge is invalidating. And so, of course, it makes sense that historically I would have chosen not to resist the urge. So when I say that this square is one of the validations, the way it's validating is that it's like, of course you would have that urge. And of course you would want to act on it. Of course I would have the urge to self-harm. And of course I would want to act on it. Because I have the thought that by resisting it, I'm invalidating my pain. I am invalidating my pain. I don't think resisting the urge to self-harm is what's doing it, though. (laughs) I mean, my judgment of myself of like, seriously, you're still in this space every January? Really? Is this what we're going to do? That judgment is invalidating. So I need to address that rather than choosing to self-harm. So anyhow, that's the square the two by two um, of the pros and cons. And as I said before, I want to use this, I want to create it before an overwhelming crisis urge hits. It says here on the the distress tolerance handout five, write out your pros and cons, carry them with you, rehearse your pros and cons over and over. And then when an overwhelming crisis urge hits, review your pros and cons. Get out your list and read it over and over again, especially, especially the, the cons of acting on the urge and the pros of resisting. The other two, the ones that I mentioned are validating, will probably not inspire me, at least, to resist the urge because they're the ones that go, oh, it totally makes sense that you would have this urge. It's the, the cons of acting on the urge, the downside of self-harming and the pros of resisting the urge. 
the the benefits of not self-harming. That will be kind of like the the neon sign that inspires or encourages me to resist self-harming. So continuing to read this, it says, imagine the positive consequences of resisting the urge. Think of the negative consequences of giving in to the crisis behaviors. And remember past consequences when you have acted on the crisis urge. Ugh. Yeah, that's a big one. Like remembering what happened. Like it really sucked having people, having men. There were always men. I never had a woman come up and ask me. But having strange men that I didn't know come up and talk to me about my body at the gym fucking sucked. And of course, you know, the impact that it had on my former partner, that fucking sucked too. So, yeah. But it is really important to like go over this over and over again so that it is really clear in my mind when the urges get really strong. It's like, there's a reason we're not acting on this joy. There's a reason you're doing this. It's been really important for me when filling out the pros and cons to be really, really honest. Because like, I understand how easy it would be to be like, well, self-harming is bad because people don't understand it and I shouldn't be doing it. Like that's a really surface level thing. And it's kind of rooted in judgment, but actually looking at the consequences long-term of what self-harm was doing for me and for my relationships and getting really honest about that, that's what had me go, okay, you're right. Because literally self-harming trains my brain and not in the direction I want my brain to be trained in. And it kind of feels like shooting myself in the foot long-term. It really does because I'm training my brain that I cannot tolerate distress. I'm training my brain that this is the thing that will have me feel better. And while I was in the thick of it, when I was doing it regularly, like I didn't reach for any other skill. I reached for this one. I reached for self-harm because it was the closest thing to me. And I had trained my brain that this is what you reach for when you're in distress. And undoing that, it's really fucking hard. It's why employers a lot of the time prefer to hire people straight out of college rather than somebody who's been in the industry for a lot of years because they don't want to have to untrain quote unquote bad habits, habits that the employer doesn't want you to have. It's so much easier to start from a fresh slate, a clean slate rather, than to have to unlearn a bunch of stuff and then learn a bunch of new stuff. So that's actually one of the big motivators for me. I need to add that to my pros of resisting the crisis urge is that I'm facilitating that clean slate and the cons of acting on the crisis urge is that it is a habit I will then have to unlearn later (laughs) because this guys all of this stuff is fucking hard enough like learning all of these skills is hard enough without actively shooting myself in the foot by training my brain to use ineffective shortcuts that don't actually meet any of my needs long-term. And I know that on a very, very, very visceral level because I had to do it. I had trained myself over two or three years, I think, to do that to self-harm instead of anything else, instead of writing out the emotion. And it fucking sucked. And I don't know that if somebody had come to me, like right at the beginning of me self-harming, or even right before I started, and explained that to me, if I would have bought it. So 
I have a lot of empathy and compassion for people who are actively self-harming, who don't get the reasoning I just gave of why that's such a strong motivating factor for me. I understand people for whom that is not a strong motivating factor yet. Like if they haven't tried to stop and experienced how hard that is, I understand why that would not be one of the things you'd put down on your pros and cons list. Because that's not the thing that would speak to you. So that's why it's key that whatever you put on your pros and cons list actually speaks to you and it actually motivates you when you see it. You're like, oh, that's right. I don't want to do that. Never mind. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking now because I've been talking for three hours. <laughs> well, fuck. For as strong as my urges were during that recording, I actually sound pretty fucking grounded. Which is <laughs> public service announcement. You can't use how someone looks or sounds as an indicator for how they feel on the inside. Because I sounded pretty, you know, level-headed and whatever. And my urges, like I was vibrating with my urges to self-harm. I wanted to point something else out. So I said, quote, learning all of these skills is hard enough without actively shooting myself in the foot by training my brain to use ineffective shortcuts that don't actually meet any of my needs long term. First off, that's a bomb ass sentence. Some solid non judgment right there. Because what I could have said is, all of it's hard enough without me being really stupid and lazy by self harming, which ultimately fucks up my life. So a couple of things I wanted to point out in the recording you just heard. A couple of things I wanted to point out. A couple of things I want to point out in the recording you just heard. I said the sentence, learning all of these skills is hard enough without actively shooting myself in the foot by training my brain to use ineffective shortcuts that don't actually meet any of my needs long term. First off, that's a bomb ass sentence. Some solid non-judgment right there, because what I could have said is, all of this is hard enough without me being stupid and lazy by self-harming, which ultimately fucks up my life. Okay, stupid is a judgment, lazy is a judgment, fuck up is a judgment, and all of that, saying it that way, makes me feel like shit. Whereas the way I said it in the recording, that learning all of these skills is hard enough without actively shooting myself in the foot by training my brain to use ineffective shortcuts that don't actually meet any of my needs long-term, that's a pretty solid statement of just the facts. And listening back to that had me think of the idiom, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <sighs> yeah. When all I had was self-harm, that's the only tool I would use. And continuing to use that tool in all situations reinforced in my brain that this is the only tool there is to use. Once I finally learned other skills, I could actually use other skills. But it required some unlearning on my part because... I was so used to just reaching for self-harm and be like, oh, 
every problem I'm facing can be answered with self-harm, which is not true. Anywho, uh, this episode's going to be a little on the short side because I'm tired of talking already, (laughs) but I did want to get it up because it's a continuation of last week's episode. And there is one more episode that I have um, from that initial recording that I did back at the beginning of January, and I will get that up next week. So it will be part three of my trauma anniversary series. And that is going to include, ooh, spoilers. Ooh, what are these called? Like trailers? Like a little mini trailer. I've never had this happen before. Uh, that's going to include me going through some, like, I thought the urges in this recording were high. I have another recording of myself with extremely high urges, much, much higher urges. So I record myself um, handling those. And then I also have a couple um, pieces of writing that I did um, about what my experience of anniversaries felt like. And one of them, I think, was in 2018, and one of them was in 2019. And I was like, dude, these are actually really accurate, because, of course, I'm the one writing them (laughs) about my own experience. Uh, So I'm going to share those as well, with the hope that if you have trauma anniversaries or you know somebody who has trauma anniversaries, they might help you understand that experience a little bit better, because I would have given a whole hell of a lot, a whole hell of a lot to hear someone else explain what was going on inside of me before I had the words for it myself. So yeah, Um, I'm going to end here and go drink a lot of tea and yeah, do my standard thing of ending this just super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me. Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.